frighten me, sir. But after all, that's part of your job. But if my father could hear you now, he'd, he'd laugh himself sick. He wasn't no colonel, sir. I just said that in order to make myself seem important out there, you know. He was a sergeant, acting sergeant, acting unpaid sergeant. And do you know what he used to say to me? He used to say, Arthur, he used to call me Arthur. Arthur, you're a carbuncle on the behind of humanity. Carbuncle. I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. Me with a, with a gun. <laughs> me, me up on the roof. I, I, I don't like heights, sir. I, I get very dizzy, honestly. I don't know what you're up to, sir, but I can see it from your face. You don't think that I'm a terrorist? Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by returning guest Christoph to discuss Peter Ustinov's Oscar-winning performance in the 1964 film Top Cappy. Christoph, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Gordon. Thank you for having me back here. I'm really enjoying it here. Uh, so uh, uh, tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie uh, for your return to the show. I mainly picked this movie because of Peter Ustinov. Peter Ustinov is one of my favorite actors. Uh, he, I, I like him as a character actor. Um, Peter Ustinov is really more than just an actor. He was, at least here in Germany, very respected, very beloved, universally beloved as a humanitarian, as a raconteur, as a personality. Um, actor was often only the fourth or fifth or sixth thing that came up when people talked about him. And for someone who had so much more going on than just being an actor. He was a damn good actor. And uh, I, I was really happy to see that one of his Oscar-winning performances was on your list, so that's why I picked it. Yeah, no, that, that's, it's always fascinating to sort of hear about the, you know, the beyond the Hollywood presence of Peter Ustinov and what, like, people outside of, uh, you know, outside, like, th there are people that, might even know who he is and not even really know that he was an actor to begin with. Like he, he has that level of, you know, presence in the world at large and in many different aspects of culture, uh, which always makes it funny to me that my first exposure to him uh, in any way was as a host of The Muppet Show. I just, you know, all these great, you know, lauded, uh, respected minds of, you know, all these different critical thoughts and then also he was on the muppet show and that's how i know him but it fits it because i think one of his most notable character traits was his sense of humor and he, he was always whatever he did he, he was very intelligent and very funny whatever he did and, and so the muppet show fits that bill perfectly exactly exactly and it also fits uh, this particular performance and movie that we're talking about because this is a kind of a hilarious performance from him he's doing very little like big comedy beats that you could see in a movie like this but he makes every moment work he's great he's very funny i'm excited to get into it it's uh he uh, is this is a comedic film but he's the the funniest part of it he is he's has a few scenes but are outright comedic but everything about this performance there's a comedic streak to it Beginning with the character, he's playing the the bumbling stooge who is drawn into something 
who spends basically the first half of the film figuring out what's actually happening to him. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a great setup for this. Like, this is a comedy movie, but even within that, he's the comic relief. And and just, you know, he plays that so well. Like, it can be tough sometimes to be the most, like, the, the character that is intended to be the funniest one in an ensemble comedy like this, and yet he pulls it off effortlessly. It is really great work. So we are talking about Top Cappy from 1964, Directed by Jules Dassin, or Dassin, I don't actually know how that's pronounced. I always want to put a French flair on it, but he's American. <laughs> he's not actually French. Well, I, also, I always want to pronounce it in a French way, uh, because, um, well, at least his son is certainly French. His son who also appears in this film at yeah. the end, and he became, he, he became famous as a singer in France, singing Aux Champs-Élysées. So, so in, in my head, I always pronounce him in a French way. Uh, he also made films in France uh, after he had uh, after he left the U.S. because it was blacklisted. Um, but I think Jules Dassin is probably the correct way. But in my head, it's always Jules Dassin. Yeah, same here. Uh, written by Monja Dashievsky, I believe is uh, another name that I don't know how that's pronounced. Uh, it's based on the novel The Light of Day by Eric. And what did I write down there? Amber? It looks like that says Amber. It's, this is off to a great start. Um, starring Melina Mercuri, Peter Ustinov, Maximilian Schell, Robert Morley, Jess Hahn, Akim Tamaroff, and, uh, uh, wow, another name, Gilles Segal? Giles Segal? Uh, Gilles Segal. Gilles Segal, okay. Uh, uh, it opened in the United States on September 17th, 1964. So uh, let's, let's just jump right into uh, Ustinov's performance here, his winning performance. It's been... A, a little bit since I've done a winner on this show. I think I think the last one I would have done was Morning Glory. I want to say, uh, but yeah, it's it's always interesting to have that extra added layer of not just a, a lone nominee but a lone winner. Yes, and you know I listen to every episode, and I think it sounds right that it was Morning Glory, but I I'm not one hundred percent certain. Yeah. So so what are your initial thoughts on this performance? What stands out to you first and foremost? Well, it stands out to me that it's a comedic performance and I always, I'm always happy to see a comedic performance wins. I mean, basically everyone says comedy is harder than drama, but usually the drama performances win. Um, he is very funny throughout. He already had an Oscar when he won this. Uh, he won it four years, five years, five years earlier for Spartacus. Yeah. Um, and um, I think there's some debate whether he really belongs into supporting or if he's really the lead actor of Top Cappy, but it really is an ensemble film. I think I personally feel like because he's the center of attention, basically, I, I probably would have more pushed him totally, but I don't think it's fraudulent to put him in supporting because he's just the, the most notable actor in a quite good ensemble cast yeah and it's also like that you can get away with some of the fraud by virtue of the fact that he's the one character that is the least in on the actual heist that's going on he's like brought into it by happenstance and is you know learning along with the audience and is kind of a surrogate in that way in yeah, he's an he's an outsider to the action who is who is pulled into it yes and pulled in 
in a lot of different facets, like from every side of the whole thing. Uh, I loved, so we should probably talk, I, I imagine this is a movie that fewer people have seen generally. Uh, not that it's not available, it's, it's out there uh, for people to watch. It just doesn't get brought up that often, even in terms of winners. Uh, but as far as the plot, so uh, there, there are these jewels in uh, the Topkapi Museum that uh, these, these jewel thieves want to steal. And so they set about to steal them. And Peter Ustinov is this like low level con man that they dupe into being their driver to get a car out of the country. Um, on the way out of the country, he gets stopped by customs that find arms in the car and they enlist him to like spy on the, the, the thieves for them because they, they think that the thieves are assassins. And then he shows up and gets roped in further uh, because they need him to drive the car that he uh, drove. They, like, they need him to be their driver for the whole heist, essentially. And then he gets brought into the fold of the heist, and then the heist happens, and then the movie ends. And it's, it's, it's not the most uh, layered plot, as far as, especially as far as a movie like this that is about, uh, you know, a, a museum robbery. Like, this could have gone many different ways and it's like the the simplest and most effective way to tell the story but uh i was so the, the moment where he is stopped by customs uh and he stopped at the border there's that whole sequence is is really great like before because he doesn't know that any of this stuff is in the car so he's just you know walking about saying hi to everyone uh like palling up with the the customs guards and then they bring him over and uh show him the the gun and six grenades in the the side of the door and a lot of what makes this performance great is his uh his like reaction shots like it'll just cut away to him making a, a face and it instantly makes the scene 10 times funnier and uh you get a lot of that in this particular sequence it begins basically with the way the way he looks. He he wears an ill-fitting suit that's about a size too small for him. Uh, he's bumbling around. He is he's basically doing a small-time con artist thing. Um, he he has been pulled into it, and he suddenly realizes he is drawn into something that he doesn't comprehend when he is shown that these uh, weapons have all been found. And then there's an interrogation scene uh, where uh, the police tries to get information out of him, information he doesn't have. And in the end, they, he basically is made to be a spy uh, for them. And the, the kind of way that, that Ustinov navigates that and Basically, I mean, this this could be a very serious scene. This this could be, uh, if if this was a serious film, this could be quite an exciting scene where uh, he would be terrified. And he he's, he he manages being on the one hand terrified about what's happening, but on the other hand, still being very funny to to watch. Yeah, it's what makes it work so well is that he's such a schmuck that like he doesn't actually know any of the things that the uh, the people that are interrogating him are asking him about. But he's so nervous in the scene that, like, he comes off as hiding something. And so they're pushing him further and he keeps on, like, digging a deeper ditch for himself when he's truly completely innocent in all of this. He has no idea what's going on. And yet his his mannerisms and his, like, nerves are just 
completely selling him down the river. Uh, and it, it's just, he's hilarious. That Like, it, it's hard to, you know, describe what makes comedy acting work in some cases, especially a performance as subtle as this one. But, like, it just works. And yeah. he's, he's great. He looks just so guilty in the interrogation scene. You, you understand why no one is believing him that he has no clue. Yeah. Uh, and also in that scene, like, when he, when he shows up at, to- uh, at, at the beginning when he's in that ill-fitting suit... Uh, there's there's another moment uh, that goes along with that for just for his costuming that I love, where he gets set up basically by Maximilian Schell and Melina Mercury to think that he's pulling one off on them and they're really pulling all the strings and they're like, hey, come back uh, later tonight. We have a we have a job for you basically, and uh, he's all proud of himself like, oh, these people think I'm someone important and uh, he he like turns to his like the woman that's his assistant and all this and he goes go back home and iron my tie (laughs) and just you know he has one tie and it's at home and he needs it to be ironed so that he can you know look formal for these people and then he shows up that night and he's wearing the same suit uh it's just he also has a tie on and i don't know that was just a little moment of like man this guy really is exactly the you know the just he's just a schmuck and they totally play him and he thinks he's one step ahead and he never is especially in contrast to maximilian shell actually does look elegant in the film and is well dressed yes uh redeeming himself from our man in the glass (laughs) episode uh he's actually pretty good in this and uh, we'll talk about him in a bit but uh yeah he's just he's he's just a, a coward kind of throughout the whole movie uh, but like not a coward that you as the audience are like like pitying or wishing that they weren't cowardly i guess like you you sympathize with him because yeah he he didn't know what he was getting into he had no reason to be uh brought into this and he happens to be like the one person that they end up relying on to make sure the heist goes off without a without a hitch and you can really tell in those later sequences where he has to be the one holding the rope uh, to make sure that the whole thing doesn't go to shit, uh, that he is terrified for his life and for everything going on there. Uh, And again, he makes those moments incredibly funny with just very subtle facial movements. Uh, I think the mustache also does a lot of heavy lifting. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The wax down to to a little curl at the very end. He's, he's just got a great look to him in this. Uh, what else? I mean, in the later course of the film, when he is spying on uh, the gang for uh, the Turkish police, there's also a lot of silent acting that he's doing. He's just watching or he's listening and he's trying to figure out what it's all about because he is reporting to the Turkish police what is happening, but he doesn't, at this point, he still doesn't understand what's happening. Uh, so he, he wants to give information to the police, but he doesn't know what this really is about. So this information he's giving to the police isn't actually all that helpful. It's more cryptic and puzzling itself. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's often, he's just standing there, um, listening to the others speak, and obviously not really understanding anything. And this is also very funny. Yeah, and a lot of that, like you said, uh, you know, non-verbal acting. It's like very wide-eyed, mouth open, just like, you know, 
thinking that he knows what's going on and he just doesn't. And that's, that's the joke of it. And it, it's, a, it's a joke that works. It's a joke that easily could have not worked in the hands of someone else, but he is the, like the right levels of completely harmless and also like so physically present. Like he's, he's, this, he's a big guy, uh, but he's, you know, like, he's like a teddy bear that uh, thinks that he's, uh, you know, a spy and he's not. Uh, I mean, he's, he's big enough to believably step in for the strong man of the group and the strong man is injured and can no longer do the part that he was supposed to do. Uh, so he, he, he is a physical presence, but he is not an intimidating physical presence. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and again, a lot of that is just in the way that they have him looking in this with the silly little mustache, with the, the too tight suit, with the sort of curly mop of hair that's always, you know, a little bit too greasy and a little bit too in his face. Uh, it really just makes him look like, you know, this... Uh, British guy living in another country because he thinks that it's easier to pull off cons there and can't pull off a con to save his life. Uh, you, you get the sense that he's truly at the end of his rope uh, by the time he gets brought into this. Uh, and even though he ends up in jail by the end of the movie, he's probably better off than he was at the beginning, uh, which is great. Could be. There isn't really all that much more, again, to talk about, about his actual performance, because it's not like this is a dynamic character necessarily. There is a moment that I like uh, where after he has been told about what they're actually doing, that he's been brought in mm -hmm. on the fact that this is a jewelry heist and not an assassination attempt on the entire Turkish government or whatever, uh, where they're all sitting around and he just sort of blurts out, oh, well, they all think you're terrorists. And just like blows his cover immediately without thinking about it. And then I liked that that wasn't a thing that they were holding on to and that like he's having to hide throughout the heist. And then it turns out, oh, they think he's a double crosser. No, he just like lets it slip. And then they're like, oh, well, whatever. You can stay around anyway. We like this. There's another very subtle character moment that I really enjoyed and I really, I had to laugh out loud when it happened. It's just before they told him, because um, there's a scene where the strongman of the group injures his hands and they need another strongman because the strongman needs to hold the rope in the actual heist. And they think that he might step in and to test his strength, he's pulling a sofa with Melina Mercury on it. And they're, they're betting him, they're saying he's getting $50 if he can, actually pull it um, and they're teasing him a bit and he in the end he manages to do it um, and there's a very beautiful moment I like that when afterwards Maximilian Schell goes to him to give him the $50 and uh, he just makes a hand motion as if he wanted to say oh no he doesn't want the money and just <laughs> as he does, does this hand motion he just grabs the banknote and puts it into his pocket it's, it's just one fluid motion which, which just fits very perfectly to this character where he's, yeah. he, 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 tries, he tries to be one thing, he is completely another thing, and he is absolutely unable to hide what he really is. Exactly. Um, there's another moment like that where, so he's listening in on uh, Shell and Mercury in, uh, in one of their bedrooms, and he hears her say that like, she thinks that he, uh, Yustinov, is like, attractive, and she noticed his eyelashes 
uh, and then also comments that she's a nymphomaniac and all this stuff. And later he like uses that to brag to the the police that he's reporting to as far as like, oh, well, you, you want information? You want things that I overheard? She thinks I'm attractive and she's a nymphomaniac. So like, good on you. But then uh, later on, I don't remember what the uh, the rest of the scene is, but like they're all sitting around and they've had some sort of victory or some sort of something. And she goes around and she like kisses each guy, like she leans down and kisses each guy. And uh, when she gets to him, she he like leans back preemptively like to, to meet her kiss and she walks right past him to go and kiss uh, Robert Morley. And then she comes back around and she kisses him too, but just, the the lean back from him of like yes i have earned this i have done a good job it's it, he is a little bit selfish and a little bit of a in it for for his own good and it's great it, it really is just a great comedic performance it's just delightful to watch him whatever he does exactly exactly i want to ask uh, i i don't always like to get into like alternate casting choices as like an actual uh point of conversation beyond just like hey isn't it cool that they considered this person but one of the people that was uh seriously considered for this role and ended up dropping out i've seen different uh reasons given for it uh but uh peter sellers was at one point attached to play this role how do you think he would have done in this role um it's difficult to say my first instinct was that Peter Sellers would probably have been a bit too much and it w might have played too much to get the joke. But then um, on the other hand, I mean, that year uh, Sellers wasn't Dr. Strangelove and um, he also played President Muffley in that one, which was also not gunning for jokes. I, I could see, I, I could imagine Peter Sellers doing it. I don't, I, I don't see him hitting the exact note that Peter Ustinov is hitting. And I really like what Ustinov is doing here. So I'm, uh, I, it would be interesting to see what Zellers is doing. I could imagine it being good. I don't think it would be this good. Yeah, uh, it's just an interesting alternate timeline to look at where Sellers keeps this role uh, and Ustinov keeps the Clouseau role because that was originally him. And then he dropped out and Sellers mm -hmm. took over for that. And just uh, what a different splintered timeline it would be if those two were switched and Sellers had an Oscar and Ustinov was Clouseau. Assuming that the role would carry on and there's a, a, all sorts of other things that you can ask about that, about what would the role, like what, is the role destined to be an Oscar winner no matter what or is it, it, I don't think it is. I think this is very like very much on the back of what Ustinov is bringing specifically to it with his dramatic and comedic weight both pulling. I think it also helps that Ustinov already won an Oscar a few years before, yes. so he was on the radar and just when he comes again uh, and is best in show in a film that people probably liked, uh, just becomes a possibility to vote for him. Um, who knows, maybe, I mean, I don't know if it would have been possible for Sellers to make both Top Copy and Dr. Strangelove. If That's it a good would point. Have, it, would good have, point. It, it would have been possible to make both for him. He would have had a great year. Uh, so maybe that would have uh, been in his favor and maybe he actually might have won the Oscar if he had been both, if he had both films that year. And I think this is also the year at least of the American release of the Pink Panther. Maybe, I don't know. I think that, 
Shot Couldn't in the Dark had come out, and then I think Pink Panther. I know I, no, I, it was Pink Panther. Pink Panther was first. Oh, yeah, you're right. Pink, Pink Panther I, came before Shot in the yes. Dark. Never mind. Never mind. But still, yeah, I think that was. I I know at the very least it was Golden Globe eligible because I wrote that down when I was doing the rest of my notes. Uh, that it uh, that he was nominated for that instead of Doctor Strangelove, which I had forgotten. But yeah, no, this it would have been a a strong year for Sellers if he. I mean, it's still a strong year even if it's just those two. Like those are his two most iconic movies. I would say, pretty like my, above the rest. Like being there is yes. up there, but Clouseau and Strangelove are are pretty pretty high up there for his career. Being there might be a more acclaimed performance, but I think it's not. It's really not as iconic as these two. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about Ustinov here or about his uh, career at large? Um, let me see if I've still got something here. He's good in Spartacus. I, He's... I remember him, I remember liking him and also thinking that like, it is kind of strange that out of that whole supporting cast, he's the one that gets singled out when you have like Olivier Chuck. and Charles Lawton and all these other people. I love him in Spartacus. I, I'm not sure if I would gun for him or Charles Lawton as my pick. He's terrific in Quo Vadis. He is the only reason to watch Quo Vadis. Um, and he really should have won the Oscar for that one. Um, he, I, I, he is my favorite Hercule Poirot. Um, there's a great film called Lola Montes in which he plays... Uh, a circus ringmaster, which is basically, it, it reminded me a lot of the MC from Cabaret, uh, but it comes before Cabaret. He's, he is, uh, Lola Montes is basically about a woman who had a lot of affairs also with kings in, uh, I think, 18th century Europe. And she, at the end of her life, she was actually presented in circuses as this woman who had this many affairs. And this is basically the circus number and their flashbacks to her life with all these different people. And he plays the ringmaster and there's, there's quite an evil streak to him. It, it's, not, this is, it's not a comedic performance, but it's really... Uh, well, it, it, the only performance I could really compare to is Joel Gray and Cabaret because it's this kind of uh, ringmaster, circus master uh, thing. And I think this might actually be my favorite performance of his, but he had really such he also a long career. I mean, he made, he, he still appeared in films uh, until well, very late in his life. Uh, I think into the, back into the 2000s, he made films occasionally. Yeah. And uh, he he was one of the people. He's one of the people. It's always the, it's always a delight to see him pop up in a film. And I really, really, uh, I can't think of a single performance by him that I didn't enjoy. There's also another one I keep recommending to people. Um, it's called Hot Millions, in which he is again a con artist who is just released from prison, and um, he is doing a new con. And because for his last con, computers uh, maybe got him. This, this film from 1968, uh, he decides to do something with computers and uh, he is uh, starting a job at uh, a company um, and his secretary is played by Maggie Smith, uh, who has no Maggie Smith-isms at all in this one. She's, it's huh. basically the kind of role that 
Goldie Hawn probably would have played uh, otherwise because she's ditzy, she's funny, uh, and, and Peter Ustinov and Maggie Smith in Hot Millions is such a great pair and they're so fun. It's, it's so much fun to watch them. Um, th this, is, this is another one. This is, it's a film many people do not know, but I always tell people to watch it. And I think, I think you wrote the screenplay for that one. And I think it got an Oscar. It definitely got an Oscar nomination for its screenplay. And I think Gustin Afford wrote, him, wrote it himself. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, from what I've seen of him, he's great. Uh, and I'm always excited to, like, when I see his name pop up in something that I'm going to watch, I'm, he, he's always a great presence. Uh, I think there's a, at least another movie. I don't, I don't know if he's in it, but he directed Billy Butt. And I'm going to be talking about it's also that. in it. Okay, okay. So uh, this is not my last time talking about him on this show either. And that's going to be an interesting one whenever I get to that. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I will definitely check out those other ones that you mentioned. Those sound. Those sound like a lot of fun. And of course, he as as I said in the beginning, he was a lot on German television because he was fluent in German. He was also, I believe, fluent in French and many other languages. And he. I I grew up with him often being on television, always revered, always admired. Um, initially, I didn't even pick up that he wasn't German when I was a very young child. Uh, I, I noticed that he, sp he didn't really speak with an accent, at least not with a classical English accent. He had an odd way of speaking, a deliberate way of speaking, and sometimes he was using a bit strange words. Uh, which showed that he wasn't a native speaker, but it was a very good German that he was speaking. He, uh, he, he was very much admired. And I think I, I once saw that, I think there are six or seven schools in Germany that are named after him. I did. Wow. <laughs> and I don't think there's many other Oscar winning actors who have schools named after him. So uh, it's really quite insane how beloved Peter Ustinov was. And I'm not sure if he is this beloved all over the world or in the US, so if it's only a European thing or maybe only a German thing, because we love international stars who, speaking, who speak German. Um, but um, he was really beloved. Yeah, uh, he, he's not necessarily a name that gets brought up as often here as some of his uh, contemporaries, but like, if you're in the know, if, if you know who Peter Ustinov is, you'll love him. I, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone about him that has disliked him as an actor or disliked any of the performances of his that they've seen. Like he is, he's, you know, hard to dislike as, as a presence in general in any sort of way. Uh, and one last note that I want to leave off uh, on him, another line of his that I wrote down in that opening sequence where we see him trying to pawn off this uh, ceramic plate as like an antique to all these people. He mentions that it, uh, that in this town, that Brutus stayed here after all that nasty business with Shakespeare. I mean, Julius Caesar. Uh, just, you know, such, he's such a moron. He, he really is just in over his head, and it's great. It is, uh, he, he makes jokes like that seem effortless, and like he is actually just, you know, mind going a mile a minute too, uh, too fast-paced for him to even catch up with his own thoughts, uh, just trying to pull whatever... Uh, out of his ass that he can, and uh, he he makes he makes it great. It's it's, it's hilarious. He is, uh, if for nothing else, watch this movie for him. Yes, 
Although there are enough other reasons to watch it. There are, and let's get into some of those right now. I don't like Simpson being here. Arthur Simpson is keeping you away from my side. He's harmless, he's a schmuck. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's a departure from the plan. This I hate. Natural. You do everything with style. It's a departure from your style. This you hate. For this I love you. Mm, style, my eye. As long as I get the emerald for you, you don't care how I get it. So, uh, out out of the rest of the movie, what uh, what do you want to talk about first here? What about Melina Mercury? She's great. She is. It's a it's a crazy performance from her. Uh, everything she's doing here. Uh, I don't know if I've seen anything of hers up until now, uh, and if I have, I just don't remember it. But uh, what an introduction. Have you seen Never on Sundays? I haven't yet, uh, but I know that's one that I need to get to. Uh, but I mean, I w what I did not remember about her performance and was kind of surprised upon in this rewatch is how horny she is. So horny. Like, in the text of the movie, she's playing a nymphomaniac. Like, that is part of her character. Uh, but it doesn't ever feel like it's, like, exploitative, like, oh, we're going to over-sexualize this female character just for the sake of it. Like, no, she's just a nymphomaniac that, you know, is attracted to all these guys equally, but doesn't, you know, use that as a, uh, as like a part of her criminal career. This is one scene where they watch a wrestling event <laughs> and men, shirtless men are rubbing themselves in oil and she's just ogling at them. And to the point that Maximilian Schell tries to block her vision of these men. Yeah. Uh, so she gets her mind of these because th th just this horny, leery look that she gives to these shirtless men in front of her. This, it's, <laughs> it's just great. It feels like kind of everyone in that crowd is uh, ogling them like that. Like it is a good maybe two minutes of just shirtless muscle men oiling each other up like not even oiling themselves up but like rubbing oil on each other's chests and backs and then tackling each other and wrestling in this open field like it it is a very very erotic display that, uh, that and it didn't on. have to be that way yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the, like the only reason that that is in the movie is so that they have an alibi for where they were while they're uh ripping off the museum but like it could have been anything else, and yet, no, it has to be this uh, oiled muscle man display. But it's great. It's, it's a great sequence for no real reason. Yeah, and it, it, it's not just her horniness that's great. She, she is the, the mastermind of the operation. She's the one who has the idea in the first place, and she's also the one who's opening the film by talking directly at the camera and basically telling to the audience what she's planning to do, which is... Uh, a way to open the film, which I haven't seen very often before. Yeah, it's a weird opening sequence where, like, it starts off with just, like, sort of flashing gem tones and, a, like, a song that feels like it's a parody of Bond themes, but it's only, like, 10 seconds long. Uh, mm. And it, it's... And then, like, the full first, like, five minutes of the movie, maybe, are just that sort of color overlay flashing lights while Melina Mercury is talking directly at the audience like, hey, I'm a jewel thief and I'm going to steal 
these jewels, and that's what the plot of this movie is. Have fun watching the movie, and then the opening credits happen, and then the movie happens, and then there's no more fourth wall breaks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it is wild, and uh, I kind of wish it had kept that tone a little bit more throughout, like the zaniness of that opening, but also I think it, it works just fine as it is. Like, it doesn't need to, but I do also kind of want to see what that movie would have been like if it was that the entire time. Also, uh, Melina Macri, talk about an actress who was so much more than just an actress. She had an entire career as a politician later yeah. and was a uh, minister of culture for Greece for, I don't know, pretty much the entire 1980s. Uh, this is, uh, and her performance in Never on Sundays is really great. Uh, so th this is another just interesting personality who's in this film. Yeah. Uh... Also, I just, I, I assume this is, just, like, th this is just her regular voice, right? Like, she's not putting on an over-affectation. Um, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, she sounds like Eartha Kitt doing a, an, a bad French accent. Uh, and let, that's not a, a, a criticism or anything. I just noticed that at one point and couldn't unhear it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, no, she's great here. She, for as much as she is, like, the jewel thief of the group the one that has stolen a whole bunch of jewels and set, sets this whole thing in, into action i i would have liked for her to have an actual active role in the heist itself like she kind of just by the time they're actually breaking into the museum she is just the alibi sticking around and watching the muscle men uh and i would have liked to see her play more of a role in the break-in but she doesn't even have that much of a role in the planning because uh, I think the planning is more done by Maximilian Schell. Uh, yeah. she, she, she basically has the idea and then goes to her ex-lover, I believe, well, probably her ex-lover or, or on-again, off-again lover, Maximilian yeah. Schell, and tells him what she wants to steal. And basically they agree that uh, he's collecting a group of people to make this heist. Yeah, like the, the biggest actual thing like thing that she has to do in the heist itself is previously they had recorded her laughing and they put that in like a bush and that is the extent of her actual part in the heist uh which let's just talk about robert morley because we're talking about the recording what a weird presence in this movie but also kind of a great one he's playing this uh this like kind of a man-child in the sense that like his whole deal is that he makes a bunch of like wind-up toys and animatronics he's like he's like the gadget guy of the group but because it's you know robert morley in these like his like pants are pulled up above his waist and he has like these little bow ties and he's very you know pompous and all that and he's playing with all these toys he looks a little bit like like a like a little kid blown up to old man robert morley size uh but no, he's, he's, he's also having a lot of fun in this movie. He's he such, such a strange casting choice. And I, I love Robert Morley. Robert Morley is one, maybe he's my favorite British character actor. I mean, he, he pops up in pretty much all your favorite British movies in many decades. Uh, and also occasionally in Hollywood movies like Marie Antoinette, where his Oscar nomination for, but he's he, he always play, he always plays 
often pompous, sometimes a bit whiny. Um, and yes, this childish version very much fits to him. He's also, he doesn't really, his character doesn't really have to do as much. It's more the fact that it's just kind of odd that this, that Robert Morley is playing the gadget guy and he's playing yeah. it like this and the gadget guy is, uh, is, is this man child. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's just, it's just, my, I always, I'm, I, I'm always happy when I see Robert Morley, but I'm happy in particular to see him like this. Yeah. And he does have like a very instrumental part in the setup of the heist where he uh, figures out what the alarm system is like. And that's a, a fun scene where he has basically recreated the entire thing in this like very small square of floor in his uh, secret room behind his toy palace, basically where even the lightest bit like of shifting weight on it will trigger the thousands of mechanisms underneath that'll set off the alarm. Uh, and like he demonstrates that by having Melina Mercury w step on it and like even just tap it with her toe. But then later he pulls out like a ping pong ball and drops it. And like every time it bounces, the alarm goes off for like half of a half of a second. And that's just a great way to demonstrate the, the stakes of what could happen in this heist while keeping it fun. And in that particular scene, the alarm that goes off is stars and stripes forever. Yes. <laughs> and it also ends on, a, on another nice detail because they're, they're basically uh, cowering down to look at this elevated step. And in the end, when it's all over, uh, and they get up, Maximilian Schell is leaning briefly on that step again. Yeah. And we're here for another second stars and stripes forever playing on, which is just an, an, a nice final joke to this, yeah. entire, to this entire set piece. Yeah. And then uh, he's the one that has to pick up the car later on. And that's uh, like, they have this car rented out under a, a false name uh, for when Yustinov brings it uh, across the border. But because that's not Robert Morley's character's actual name, he is not legally allowed to drive the car. So that's why Yustinov gets brought back into the fold and gets looped into this whole scheme because he has to be their driver just because of a technicality. But well, I think it's basically what the police is telling them because the, the Turkish police uh, want yeah, yeah, Yustinov to be with them. So, so, the, so this is basically what the Turkish police makes up so, so uh, Peter Yustinov can remain with the group for the entire time. Yeah, but like even in that moment, it feels like Yustinov isn't even aware of that. He just fully believes the lie in the same way that Robert Morley does. Uh, he, again completely witless he's 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 just sort of walking by reading a, a magazine and happens to be you know flagged down and brought back into the fold it's great uh let's talk about uh our our favorite maximilian shell Let, let's go back to him let's uh uh re again like i said redeeming himself from man in the glass booth uh he's he's fun here he's he's doing a great job playing this sort of suave uh, you know, Danny Ocean type. Like this, this reminded me a lot of Ocean's Eleven and he feels kind of like the, like the George Clooney on top of everything, commanding everyone, but also like very chill, very down to earth, very, you know, you know, I don't know. Yeah, he's just very, very chill. He, 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 
he is very relaxed. He is quick on his feet when he needs to change the plan. And he gives off the idea that he is pretty much everything in control. And even when something surprising happens, uh, it doesn't take long for him to get back on track again. And uh, I, I really like, like how he plays this character. Um, it's... Um, I'm I'm not used to seeing Maximilian Schell like this. I'm used to seeing him taking himself much more serious. And and so having a lighter tone from him is uh, something surprising and it works very well here. Yeah, it 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 does, but like it it's not light in the sense that he's not like actively a comedic role. He's kind of the straight man of the group, but he brings levity in those moments like he is uh like he breaks all of the tension. He is, like you said, quick on his feet. He knows exactly how to get out of any given situation, and just through virtue of that, you are. Uh, you're, he's a welcome presence because he he he's gonna fix everything. He's gonna solve all of their problems. He's uh, he catches Ustinov when he almost falls out of the uh, the slot when the rope gives slack, yeah. and he he is just he's in control of everything. He's literally pulling the ropes. Uh, of the whole heist uh, he he is keeping everyone on balance and uh, it, it's a necessary you know centering weight in at the center of the movie that keeps it grounded and keeps it from going full farce uh and like way over the top i mean among the group i also really like uh gilles segal the mute acrobat I think he's his character is Italian. I think it's Sergio is his name. Something um, like that, yeah. I mean, when the actual heist is happening, he is the one who has to do the most vital job and who has the most uh, difficult job of actually hanging down from the ceiling and communicating while pulling the ropes, uh, which what the next action is, and actually getting the dagger that is all about, um, and. I mean, it's on on one hand, it's uh, kind of strange uh, that he's just mute and communicates to everyone else with sign language, uh, but also it's an odd collection of characters. So why not? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> like you see, you see these people walking down the hallway together, and you have Ustinov, you know, sweating up a storm, and you have uh, uh, Robert Morley just looking like Robert Morley and you have the strong man with both of his hands like bandaged up to look like boxing gloves. And like, this, this is really a Motley Crue, uh, which makes sense because uh, he's intentionally picking out amateurs for this, uh, for this heist so that when the police inevitably investigate it, they aren't looking for anyone that has a police file. Uh, but yeah, you really get uh, the sense that this is, the most ragtag group that they could throw together. Uh, and he, he's just another, like, that's another part that feels very Ocean's Eleven. Like, he feels kind of like Yen in, in yes. he's the acrobat that speaks. I don't, I, does that, no, that character does speak English, but he doesn't speak all that often. Well, he, he understands when they talk to him, so he, he must speak English, but he just yeah. doesn't reply. Or, and, yeah. and in the heist, it's, it's really a very, Physic it must have been physically demanding um, to do that. And uh, he, he I, I really, I, I don't think it was very easy to do what he does. And yeah. uh, in that part, 
also not just hanging from there, but he also must act when he basically almost drops the dagger, almost drops the statue that is uh, wearing the dagger uh, uh, just at the moment when he is uh, a bit too cocky because he thought he had just pulled it off and then yeah. things go a bit wrong and he just gets them all back again. It's, uh, I think it's, he's, he's, he's really shining in, in this moment. Yeah, and like in that whole sequence, Again, going back to Jules Dassin, uh, it feels very Rafifi. Like, I don't think there's a yes. single line of dialogue after they uh, they let him down on the ropes, at least from the three of them that are up there. Like, it is all, I think it's almost entirely silent. Or if there is... I think Shell and Ustinov talk to each other. There might, yeah, there might be a little bit there. Yeah. But like, it, it feels mostly like what we're, we're just watching. It is showing and not telling about how this whole thing goes down. Uh, which is, uh, it, it's great filmmaking to to yes. be able to pull off not one but two heist movies in your career that have like an all time great heist sequence. That yes. is, uh, and one is dramatic, one is comedic, so they're a great pair. Yeah, exactly. It, it, this did make me want to go back and rewatch Rafifi because uh, it's it's been a minute since I've watched that one. But, yeah, yeah. I, I I wanted to rewatch it as well, but I, I I couldn't squeeze it in before the episode. But I'm I'm planning to rewatch it soon. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I've seen all that many other of his movies, uh, at least that I can think of. Uh, do you have any others of of his that are you, so you we, would want to know? We already mentioned Never on Sunday, which you told me just you haven't watched. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think these these are the three main films by him: uh, Rififi, Top Capi, and Never on Sunday. Uh, Night in the City is another one. Oh, and The Naked City. Yeah. Wait, wait a second. Let me, one moment. I mean that. Yeah, um, I'm I'm looking at his filmography now. There's like there's movies in here that I have heard of, but again, also haven't seen or don't know as much about but uh yeah interesting career for him uh you mentioned he was blacklisted during the mccarthy era and yes. kind of just left the country and made the rest of his movies outside of the united states for the rest of his career yes yes i mean from this american movies night in the city is is the one i personally like the best and would recommend the most um and yes he 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 was blacklisted and went to europe uh, which was basically his only way to still make movies, and he he then only in Europe made the films that he is remembered for best, like Rififi, like Topkapi, like Never on Sunday, and he also met Melina Mercury there and married her and was together with her until the end of his life. Yeah, uh, I I I do want to dive deeper into his filmography. He's one of those names that like I've always been aware of even before I had seen any of his movies or known much about him. Like I've known of him as a, a very interesting career as a filmmaker and also just as a presence within and without of the Hollywood system at large. Uh, fascinating guy. Yes. Uh, and then I, we, the, so the end of the movie, they basically almost to show off go into the office of the Turkish police to be like, hey, by the way, uh, 
we found all these arms and uh, we've, like we found this gun and all these grenades inside our, our car that we were borrowing from this guy that we made up. What's up with that, you guys? And then it uh, comes back to bite them in the ass because uh, a bunch of things happen all at once. There was a bird that got into the museum right as they were leaving and that triggers the alarm. And also some uh, uh, note that Ustinov had dropped for them a while back ends up connecting to uh, the the character played by Dasson's son, who's like a, a worker at this fair that's coming into town and something, something, the cops show up and he just gives them up basically. <laughs> and, uh, and then they all get arrested and sent to, to the same prison. And then the, as the end credits show, maybe they break out and make it somewhere snowy. Maybe they're going to steal the, the jewels in Moscow. Who knows? Uh, it, it, it's, it's in the way of fun ending. I mean, they all ended up in jail. It's this very weird jail where basically the men's section and the women's section are right next to each other. And uh, they have gate. Yeah. They, this gate, in, a hole in the wall with a gate between it where they can all sit down <laughs> and plan the next heist. And uh, it doesn't really matter because apparently either they are out straight away to go to Russia or they're at least planning to go out straight away. Um, it, it's, the ending is almost inconsequential. It, it, the important thing is the heist that happened before it and that almost went perfectly and maybe would have went perfectly if, if they just hadn't been too cocky about it. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit too much hubris on the part of kind of everyone. It, it's not on any one person's fault. It's just they all collectively had a little bit too much uh, gall. Well, they had to get rid of the guns somehow because they knew that uh, the police were following them because of the guns and they had to explain away uh, why the guns were there. So that, that really was the reason why they were in the police station. But uh, you get a feeling they could have done it in a way that they could have gone out sooner or better. Yeah, a way that doesn't involve all seven of them showing up together. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, anything else about the movie? Uh, there were some interesting things that I found just on the Wikipedia about the uh, the changes from the book to the movie. Uh, the book is narrated by the uh, the Peter Ustinov character, who's like a taxi driver that tries to uh, steal something from them, and then he gets blackmailed into joining the uh, the heist. And then because of that, like we or the readers are learning a, like the actual truth of what's going on at the same time that he is uh, which seems like an, an an interesting way also to tell the story rather than being told in the first five minutes we're going to steal I, these jewels I, I can see how that totally works uh, for a novel I'm not sure you could translate that to a film so probably yeah. was a good idea to basically say in the beginning this is a heist movie. Also, I don't know how this was marketed in 1964. Maybe it was, if it was marketed right away as the new heist movie by the guy who brought your Riffy fee, <laughs> um, I, I think it would have been, uh, it, it wouldn't have made much sense to uh, to take that structure. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Or are you ready to move on and talk about the Oscars? I think we can move on to the Oscars. As usual, Academy members have nominated five talented men for this coveted award. They are 
Stanley Holloway in My Fair Lady, Peter Ustinov in Top Cappy, Edmund O'Brien in Seven Days in May, Lee Tracy in The Best Man, Sir John Gilgood in Beckett. May I have the envelope? The winner is Peter Ustinov in Top Cappy. Accepting for Peter Ustinov, Mr. Jonathan Winner. expected this. Uh, I certainly didn't. Otherwise, I would have been sure to wear black socks. But, uh, I'll make this very brief. I'm more excited than if Peter were here himself. He's in England, I'm pretty sure, in Europe. I obviously isn't here, but if he were here, he, I'm sure, would be almost as speechless as me. That's about it. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Academy and the industry and everything, I hope that covers everybody. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So uh, as far as precursors, this movie actually, uh, for a 60s movie, there are a considerable amount of uh, other tabs on the IMDb awards page that uh, there's, there's some stuff to talk about here. Uh, for example, at the Golden Globes this year, it was nominated for uh, Best Lead Actor in a Comedy Musical for Peter Ustinov. Uh, so they, they did decide that he was ultimately a lead of the movie and not a supporting actor. Uh, he loses to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. Eh. Uh, also <laughs> nominated are Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins, Peter Sellers for The Pink Panther, not for Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I wonder if there was just an eligibility thing because it doesn't show up anywhere at these Globes. Uh, but yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what that would have been. And then uh, Marcello Mastroianni for Divorce Italian Style. Also, is Dick Van Dyke really a lead actor in Mary Poppins? Uh, he gets the opening sequence where he talks to the camera. He's kind of a little bit. Uh, also, I said Divorce Italian Style, Marriage Italian Style, the other one. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah he, he's, I, I could see the case. He's also at this point, like one of the biggest stars on TV so yeah maybe that's more of a reason i think yeah. story-wise you, you you could take him out of the film without damaging too much of it but yeah. uh, m maybe we just uh couldn't accept that there's a film led by only a woman yeah. and be so successful that's uh that's probably a, a not inconsiderable part of it uh and speaking of Julie Andrews in that movie, she wins the comedy uh, musical Globe for lead actress, where Melina McCrory is also nominated, along with Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady, Sophia Loren for uh, Marriage Italian Style, and Debbie Reynolds for The Unsinkable Molly Brown. So, like, a not inconsiderable amount of the actual leading actor and actress nominees at the Oscars are musical and comedy this year, and not uh, drama, which... I mean, three of the four winners are musical or comedy nominees. Yeah. And then, uh, I haven't seen Zorba the Greek, but I, I don't imagine that that's 
Oh, it's, it's a comedy neither, drama. Yeah. It's more drama than comedy. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I would assume so from what I know about it. Especially her character. Yeah. Uh, Although her character... Yeah. 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 Uh, also, as far as uh, precursors, it makes the National Board of Review's top 10 movies of the year, along with Beckett, Four Days in November... Girl with the Green Eyes, My Fair Lady, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, The Chalk Garden, The Finest Hours, The World of Henry Orient, and Zorba the Greek. Uh, also no Ducks of Strange Love on that list. Yeah, or Mary Poppins, although that is slightly that makes a little bit more sense for uh, NBR, but like, yeah, Strange Love really just not showing up at a lot of these places. Uh, I, I wonder why that is, considering it did end up getting uh, moderately well received at, uh, specifically with the Oscars and with some of these other uh, I mean it, it gets four nominations at the Oscars but they're, they're in big categories yeah uh, one place that it does not only show up but win though is uh, at the Writers Guild for Best, um, Best Britain American Comedy uh, when they had like ten categories by genre and also uh, country of origin, I guess. Uh, and it's kind of strange. I mean, I believe Top Copy is technically an American film, but by by very loose standards, in the sense that Jules Dassin all... is from America. But yeah. other than that, I mean, all the actors are European, except except uh, Akim Tamirov, who is American but has a very small role. Um, yeah. It's not like it's, none of it is shot in America. It's shot in Europe. It's uh, it, it feels very European. So, yeah, I don't necessarily know why this is a is considered an American comedy, but I guess they liked it. They liked it enough that they made it count. Uh, because, like I said, Str- Doctor Strangelove ends up winning. You also have Father Goose, The Pink Panther, and The World of Henry Orient in this lineup. Uh, the the adapted screenplay lineup at the Oscars ends up being five for five with Best Picture, right? And with Best Director. It's, it's this weird year when Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay have the same five nominees and Best Actor is completely from those five films. Yeah, that uh, so, doesn't happen all that often. Or I would imagine ever. Never. Outside <laughs> of this one year, yeah. Uh, and then... Also, you have at the Laurel Awards, it comes in fourth place for Best Action Drama, apparently, behind two James Bond movies, and I didn't write down what the other one was. And uh, Peter Ustinov wins their supporting actor lineup as or award there as well. So uh, as far as, like, that's, I think, the only thing that he actually wins, and he gets the Globe nomination in lead. But, yeah, I, I don't know much about the what the race was like in the lead up to this, uh, like if he was an assumed winner or if it was kind of a surprise win. I, I don't, I didn't read up. I was going to read through Inside Oscar and it slipped my mind uh, to do a, a brush up on this particular. I must admit, neither have I. So uh, we're both uh, pulling a blank and have to widely speculate here. Although if I look at the lineup, I'm not exactly sure if none of them screams frontrunner to me. Yeah, like uh, John Gilgood, maybe in the sense that Beckett got a lot of nominations and at this point he's a very well-respected stage actor. 
and this is is this his first nomination um wasn't he nominated for othello or was that after no, it, that I, I don't think so i think uh it was i don't remember the actor that plays iago but i don't think he got he might have uh but i'm i'm i don't remember John Gielgud is just a kind of, uh, John Gielgud didn't get nearly as many Oscar nominations as you'd think he have, but he also feels like the kind of actor uh, who uh, you would feel just gets an Oscar nomination in a week year where people would think, oh, what did John Gielgud do this year? I just checked. He actually got only two Oscar nominations, Beckett and Arthur, which he won. That's it? Wow. It's I insane. totally thought there was more than that. I Man. mean, John Gilgot should have, I don't know, six or seven at least. Yeah. This, this, it, it, John Gilgot just feels like the kind of actor. I mean, he, he, he had an, a career that spent, what, 70 years? Uh, he he, should, he sh- should have a bunch of nominations. Yeah. Like, it, I, I'm at least glad that he did win at some point in his career. But, man, for a career that extensive, it is kind of surprising that it's just those two. Um, so, like, I, I could see him having been seen as, like, a presumed frontrunner for that alone, but he's in very little of Beckett. Yes, he shows uh, up, like, two-thirds of the way through an already very long movie and then kind of leaves as quickly as he arrives. I mean, he he is good because he's John Gielgud. Um, so, so if it wasn't if it wasn't Justinov, I would probably say from this lineup, it's most likely John Gielgud. Um, yeah. But as you said, he 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 is. It's strange to say it. He's not a main attraction because he's a supporting actor. He's not supposed to be the main attraction. But he is. He, he just doesn't. Beckett is not the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of John Gielgud. Let's put it like that. Yes, exactly. Um, I want to double check something. Uh, give me just a second. Uh, the Golden Globes this year. Okay, yeah. So looking just like as far as who a uh, front runner could have been, uh, when you look at who the supporting actor lineup was at the Golden Globes, Yustinov uh, obviously isn't nominated because we said he shows up in lead. And then uh, neither is John Gilgood. Uh, but the other three eventual Oscar nominees are. And the winner of those three is actually Edmund O'Brien for Seven Days in May. So maybe he could have been viewed, but like. That's also a movie that, it's not a movie I'm talking about because it got like an art direction nomination as well, but that's not a movie that they particularly were paying all that much attention to. Yeah. But as we're talking about, that doesn't really apply in this race because uh, Tuff Caffey only got the one nomination and it, he won for it. So Yes, and like Ustinov, O'Brien is at that point a previous Oscar winner. Yes. For supporting actor. Um I'm not really that fond of his performance in Seven Days in May. There are a lot of great performances in that film. He just doesn't... uh, He's the alcoholic senator who's a good friend of the president who is about... who is um, facing... um, I think the military tries to remove him that's the plot and he's he's in the inner circle of the president and I I, I went out confusing I think at some point he gets abducted am I confusing something here it's it's just 
it's it's a good film. They're very, there are a lot of good, great performance in it. There are a lot of performances as president in the year 1964, uh, because <laughs> we also got the best man, where one of the, nom the nominees, the best man, is playing a U.S. president. Um, but Frederick March is terrific in Seven Days in May um, as the U.S. president. It's just, it's just surprising to me that uh, Edmund O'Brien is the one who is singled out for an Oscar nomination. And I think, like you said, maybe a lot of that comes from the fact that he already has an Oscar at this point. So yeah. they're uh, more lenient towards him as someone that they can uh, nominate again. Uh, I haven't seen The Best Man uh, because I will eventually be doing an episode on it for this show. It seems interesting. Like I'm, for whatever reason, I I am curious to watch it, but I don't really know much of anything about it. I mean, The Best Man is a film that probably is very dated if you watch it now because I believe when it came out it was supposed to show what a cutthroat business uh, top level politics is and if you watch it today you almost get nostalgic to see oh <laughs> those back in the days when people were um, were when politics was clean when, when politics yeah. was clean and people were uh, not not this extreme and but people were fighting fairly or sort of fairly it I, I don't think it pulls nearly the punch it probably was supposed to pull back in the day yeah i would i'll be very curious to see how that one holds up but uh, as it stands i have not seen it currently and then the other nominee here we have is a uh, stanley holloway for my fair lady which so this is not a movie that I was uh, uh, predestined to enjoy all that much by virtue of the fact that I have a, uh, uh, I, I don't like Rex Harrison. I, I, have an, I have a natural aversion to him in just sort of in general when he shows up in things. Uh, and especially with the character he's playing here, I just was not all that invested in the movie. Uh, all that being said, I thought he was, I thought that uh, Stanley Holloway was at least enjoyable when he showed up on screen. I, I didn't dislike his part. Well, um, I sh probably share your feelings about Rex Harrison, maybe not to the same extent. I have no idea why Stanley Holloway is nominated yeah, for this. It's a weird nomination. It's a weird nomination uh, <laughs> it's... considering everything else, but like. I mean, it's a couple songs that are big, like showpieces for him, and then he's not in the rest of the movie. One of the reasons why I'm so lenient with Peter Ustinov's nomination in the supporting category is that the rest of the lineup doesn't really do anything for me. I mean, there were some good choices they could have had. I mean, I have no idea why George C. Scott didn't get nominated for Dr. Strangelove. Exactly. When, when Dr. Strangelove gets nominations in other major categories, um, a nomination that was never going to happen but would, would have been really fun would have been Get Fröbe for Goldfinger because he is more iconic than this entire lineup. He, it's probably the most iconic performance of the year. Uh, and it would have been... He would never, back in that day, and probably still today, a performance like this would never be Oscar nominated. I and mean, we still haven't got an Oscar nominated Bond villain or performance from a Bond film. We had quite a few that would have deserved it. Yeah. Um, but why not him? Yeah. Or, Another one from this year that was probably nowhere close to getting a nomination, 
but would have been a really fun one is uh, Wilfred Bramble in yes! Hard Day's Night. Yes, I was just about to say him. He's, <laughs> he's so enjoyable in that movie. He's, he's such a delightful... Such a clean old man. Yes, he's such a clean old man. Uh, uh, yeah, no, that would have been... Like, it, never going to happen. Never in a million years. That movie does get a couple nominations, but I don't think it was ever going to get any sort of serious attention. I mean, like, it, it gets a screenplay nomination even. Uh, yeah, but, which, uh, is a cool, which is a really cool nomination, honestly. But like... But it's, it's this era... I mean, these days, um, it's like best original screenplay often feels like the good screenplay category and best adapted screenplay is the category where the uh, films are nominated. Back in the 60s, uh, all the prestige was an adapted. And as you sometimes have an idea that we're really scrambling to get best original screenplay together. And that's when more outside choices uh, had a chance to come up there because apparently they didn't have too many original screenplays in Hollywood. It's also the era where a lot of European films get nominated. And just this year's, I think, two of the five nominees are uh, non-English language films. Yeah. So, like, and it's often like in best original screenplay in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Hard Day's Night is like the one movie here that I've seen. And I've at least heard of Father Goose, but just reflexively because I know it's a screenplay winner. Like, I don't think I've heard of it in any other contexts. The other movies... I challenge anyone listening that's not like a like an Oscar completionist to have seen any of these movies. Uh, One Potato, Two Potato, The Organizer, or That Man from Rio. Like those are just that's, those are those are those aren't movies. Those are the only just not movies. The only reason I have watched them is because uh, I have been actively seeking out Oscar-nominated screenplays to watch. I think in 2021. Yeah. And it took me until then to finally seek them out. So yeah. it's, it's, these are really quite obscure nominations. And on the other hand, you have the adapted screenplay category, which is identical to the best picture lineup. Exactly. Yeah. And like looking at some of the other movies that get, you know, above the line nominations that aren't screenplay nominated, they're all adapted. Like this movie, Tough Happy, is adapted. Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which I will eventually be doing, is adapted. Uh, the Best Man... Oh, well, that's an original screenplay that might have been able to sneak in there, uh, but I don't know. Uh, and Single Molly Brown is adapted. Night of the Iguana is adapted. There's, like, all of the movies that they are paying... Even Marriage like, Italian Style is adapted. Yeah, like, all these movies that they're paying attention to are adapted. Like, they are truly not... Uh, picking from the uh, the best of the best when it comes to original stories being told. And then by just the just by the 70s that completely turns around and that sort of begins the trend that you were talking about that we're still seeing now where like all of the cool uh, picks are going to original mainly. Uh, what other categories can we talk about here? What else at this year's Oscars? Uh, the editing in this movie I thought was uh, pretty good, especially with the sequence, with the whole heist sequence. Uh, what do we have here? Uh, Mary Poppins is the winner. We also have Beckett and My Fair Lady, and then Father Goose again, and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Uh, yeah, um, it, the Father Goose nomination 
doesn't really make much sense to me. It's, I mean, I have seen Father Goose a while ago. Um, I didn't really love it. I don't remember much about it except that Cary Grant stars in it. And I think it's one of the last films by uh, Cary Grant. Um, but it's clearly not the kind of film that screams editing nomination to me. Yeah, I don't think I could uh, tell you a single thing about it other than Cary Grant is in it. I don't know, like, I don't know the plot of the movie. I don't know why it's called Father Goose. I have genuinely no awareness of what that movie is. So, uh, I, I dimly remember there's some World War II thing going on. Oh, wow. Huh. Didn't know that. Didn't, oh, looking at this cast, there's like people I've heard of in it, but uh, yeah, didn't know anything about that movie. Kind of a, a strange nomination there, but I, I don't imagine that Top Cappy was close to getting that uh, other nomination when you have like Dr. Strangelove or Zorba the Greek or these other movies that they are nominating in several categories that uh, yeah. could have shown up here instead. But it would have been a, a deserving one if, like, if just for the strength of the heist sequence and having to cut back and forth between all the working pieces. I think it it would make a lot of sense. Also, I I really like Hush Hush Sweet Child a lot. I also don't really know why this is an acting nominee, but yeah, uh, again, like you said, uh, like we were just talking about with the screenplay categories. A lot uh, in this time, the editing categories go for some weird picks. Uh, and like that even still happens now where you'll get like like Wonder Boys getting a, uh, an editing nomination for kind of no reason. Or uh, I'm blanking on what some others are. But there have been some weird picks where they just go for a movie they liked uh, that doesn't really have the flashiest editing uh, just as a way to say, hey, we liked this movie. Uh, so I guess that's the case here with uh, with those two. I at least get it. Like, for as much as I didn't really like My Fair Lady, I at least get the editing nomination for that one on a formal level. Like, it is a, it's a long movie, but it is, it is a movie that uh, is competently edited, I suppose. In all honesty, uh, despite having watched a lot of films. Editing is one of those things where I say, maybe I need someone to tell me what good editing and bad... I mean, I can recognize bad editing. I I mean, if, if I see that infamous sequence from Bohemian Rhapsody, I don't need someone to tell me that this is bad editing. Um, yeah. So, well, but bad, bad editing is something you notice because um, uh, it just sticks out. I don't often recognize good editing. I mean, th th sometimes uh, a scene that is very well edited uh, where you notice there's a certain rhythm to it, that's, I noticed, but if you just showed me a scene, a film that doesn't have any particular scenes where rhythm is important or something like that, and you would ask me if it's well edited or not, I would have no idea. Yes, a lot of the time it can just be like, looking back after the fact thinking, well, did that movie have moments that felt well-paced or like, I, I also very rarely am consciously noticing good editing in the moment. It is very often a retrospective looking back. I'm like, yeah, I guess there was some, uh, some moments that I found 
to be edited uh, particularly well. Uh, and on occasion, like you said, there are moments where it'll stand out and I will actually recognize it in the moment. But no, it, it is a lot of the time uh, uh, just thinking back on whether or not uh, it is good editing, I guess. Uh, some of these other... Uh, costume design? Uh, I mean, the, the, the tiny suit is nice, but like... I don't know if this necessarily warrants a costume design nomination, especially over these other movies that are there. Like that is a, a pretty strong lineup. Yes. Cinematography. Uh, I don't know what Cheyenne Autumn is. Uh, oh, that is, that's a Western thing, I believe. Apparently so, according to Wikipedia. Oh, it's, a John, it's the last Western from John Ford. Oh, I, I, just, I just spotted What a Way to Go, which reminds me that Paul Newman would have been a lot of fun as a Best Supporting Actor nominee that Ooh. year, although probably back in the 1960s, Paul Newman would never have gone supporting. Oh, uh, yeah, none of them would have. But what, what a Way to Go is a very funny uh, film in which Shirley MacLaine goes to a bunch of different husbands. One of them is Paul Newman, and he's hilarious in it. It's really, really very funny. Yeah, I've seen a few scenes from it here and there, but I do, I do want to seek out that whole movie at some point. Uh, it seems right up my alley, uh, just from everything that I know about it tangentially. Uh, it, it should be. I, I had fun watching it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, none of these other categories are really... Stand like, this is kind of a movie that makes sense as a lone nominee in the sense that, like, I don't know where else I would have nominated it, like th that I feel strongly about nominating it, but I also don't feel strongly about like n snubbing it anywhere either. Yeah, it's also, it's also a year in which the Academy pretty much nominated the same bunch of movies for all the categories. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, different movies in the technical categories than in the above the line characters uh, for a bit, but uh, it's just, my Fair Lady pops up a lot. Beckett pops up a lot. Mary Poppins pops up a lot. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte pops up a lot. Zorba the Greek pops up a lot. The Unsinkable Molly Brown pops up a lot. And then you get a few films which have three or four nominations, but it really is a, a lot of films have five or more nominations and a lot of categories look pretty much the same. I mean, Best picture, best director, best actor, and best adapted screenplay. Six five movies. films. Yeah, six, five. Like, yeah. Oh, five. five. Yeah, it's, five. Uh, it's, it's Beckett has yeah. two best actor nominations. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, this is still the only year where three different movies received twelve or more nominations. Like that is really emblematic of they're not doing a lot of uh, wealth spreading with these nominations. It is they liked what they liked, and everything else can kind of go fuck itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else, or do you want to move on to the closing segment here? Um, let me have a look. I think I have, do I have any more notes. Um... Oh, one last thing, uh, also from the awards tab here. It, uh, at something called the David Di Donatello Awards, some Italian awards something, uh, it won the, uh, or Melina McCrory won the Golden Plate Award uh, in a tie with Michael Kakayanis for Zorba the Greek and Dino De Laurentiis 
in general, which I assume is just an award for best Greek. Uh, <laughs> a weird category. It's, it's, it's an actress, a, pr a producer, and a director all sharing this one award. It's, that, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe just a general contribution to cinema award. Anything else or do we want to move on to our closing thoughts? I think we can move on. Okay. So, in your uh, fantasy world where you get to pick all of the nominees, what other nominations would you have given Top Cappy? Um, well, going through... It's an interesting question. The first, Maybe the first question is, do we give Peter Ustinov his nomination? Um, yes. Yes, obviously, yeah. Do we give it to him in lead or in supporting? That's... I th it, just because... I think you can. I'm, I'm fine in either. Yeah, you can make the case either way. Uh, it's probably a little bit more of a lead than a supporting, but yeah. it's enough of an ensemble, and he's enough of a uh, not a passive role in the actual heist. But he's like, he's not as involved as some of the other characters, so I can feel a little bit okay with a a potential fraud there. Um, and I think you could probably ask the same question about Melina Mercury. Um, you could put her both in lead and in supporting with, for pretty much similar reasonings, because on the one hand, she is the main instigator. She is the one who is the, the first person we see on the screen. Um, on the other hand, she is part of an ensemble, and in the actual heist, she has less to do than anyone else so, so, so you could put it both into lead and supporting i think the lead lineup is really good that year um and if you had to bump someone out it would probably be either sophia loren or debbie reynolds um there's a bit more room in supporting probably but i think i would probably nominate her as well yeah she's a she's a lot of fun and it's a it's a fun character and it's a an interesting character and she makes it all the more interesting just with her unique presence. So yeah, I, I, I can get on board with that. I wonder if, I, if, if we might maybe throw even a second supporting actor nominee in there because there are quite a lot of great performances uh, in the film. Uh, maybe Gilles Segal, maybe Robert Morley. I'm not really committed to that, but I could imagine seeing more. And the only other category I'm really seeing a screenplay uh, adapted screenplay um, I think My Fair Lady would be the easiest one to kick out of, from the actual lineup although they were never not going to nominate winner. it but yeah. yeah but we're talking fantasy world so My Fair Lady yeah. can go and I would I wonder, I'm not sure if there may be other as we said this is a a lot of adapted screenplays uh, were there that, yeah, I'm not 100% certain it would make my top five, but screenplay is the other category where I believe it would fit. Um, below the line, the only category that really comes to mind is editing. As as we said, I don't really know what really good editing is. Yeah. Um, it, it, this feels like a film that could be there, then again, so does Dr. Strangelove, which isn't nominated. Or so does A Hard Day's Night. Like, there's, there's some yes. very, you know, famously edited sequences in that movie. Uh, yes, A Hard Day's Night is a film with editing, I believe. So it, it 
it's it's really some, be there it's got some cuts in there it, there's there was some editing being done at some point uh yeah no i i think i agree with all of the categories you mentioned uh, supporting actor actress or supporting actress wherever we're feeling uh for her adapted screenplay even if it's not in my top five it's still worthy of consideration i would mm-hmm. have to look more at the year but uh like we said a strong year and then editing again if not in my top five, certainly in strong consideration for a potential uh, nomination there. I think it's it's not a film where I feel it was robbed of having multiple nominations. It's a film that doesn't, I wouldn't necessarily expect to be on the Oscars radar. So I'm really happy with the nomination and the win that it got, yeah. especially because it's for Peter Ustinov, who is, they, they did pick the best thing in the film. I, I think they, they did honor the best element of the entire film with this Oscar. So I'm completely fine with that. Um, so it makes sense as a lone acting nominee. Um, it doesn't feel egregious that anything else is there, even if there were other things that could have been considered. Yeah, at the end of the day, you can't really say this movie got robbed because it is an Academy Award winner. Like, uh, it is one of the 30 uh, that I'll be talking about. I've done a surprise, like, I should probably space these out a little bit more uh, in the coming, because, like, how many have I done already? Uh, Let's see, one, two, three, three, four, uh, this is my fifth, I want to say. Fifth winner in 40 episodes. Maybe I skipped over one, but uh, yeah, I should I should probably uh, pace those out a little bit further, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what I've got coming up. I think I have uh, at least a few more in the upcoming schedule, so uh, be on the lookout for those. Uh, yeah, I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for coming back on. This was a, this was a, a great time. I had a, I had a lot of fun with this one. So I had fun with the film and I had fun recording the episode with you. Yeah. Uh, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, this is the question I always forget I should prepare something for. Um, I am on Twitter as Judge Roy Snyder. I'm on Letterboxd as Christoph N. I'm also on Sporkle uh, as Mr. Whiplash, where I am your curator for the actor and German categories and regularly put out quizzes. Not as many as I did uh, formerly, but I'm still at the moment one quiz per week and a huge back catalog of quizzes about the Oscars, about movies and about all kinds of other things as well. Yeah, go check those out. Those are a lot of fun. Uh, you can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening.